Before we kick off Season 8 of the podcast, it would be remiss of anyone releasing political content this weekend not to honor Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who passed away on Friday. After her 27 years on the Supreme Court, she will be remembered as a fighter, a trailblazer, and a cultural icon, the very best of the American spirit. She will be sorely missed. The Fly on the Wall team, along with the rest of the nation, mourns her passing. Hi, I'm Haley. And I'm Kelvin. Welcome to a new season of Fly on the Wall. We are so excited to take you along on our eighth season. We've got a great class of geopolitics fellows, including today's guest, along with 2020 election content to come. Speaking of elections, make sure you register to vote and request your mail-in absentee ballot. GVotes is a student-run initiative working to grant easy access to voting resources. They have registration and ballot request info on their site, and getting there is as easy as Googling GVotes and clicking on the first result. Before we introduce this week's guest, Faz Shakir, make sure you follow us on social media. We are at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And be sure to send us a message to flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Faz Shakir served as the campaign director for Senator Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign. Prior to the campaign trail, Shakir was national political director at the ACLU and previously senior advisor to Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and then Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Faz, thank you so much for joining us on Fly on the Wall today. Thank you, Haley. Appreciate it. Yeah. To get started, can you tell us a little bit about what got you interested in politics? Yes. So I I think I would probably go all the way back to being a young child, uh, being forced to watch World News Tonight with Peter Jennings and, you know, Dan Rather and Tom Brokaw and all that. My parents, you know, would would make that a nightly routine. I probably didn't know it. It was subconsciously persuading me to be in a political life. Uh, But by the time I got to college... Uh, I, politics was something I was interested in, public policy, public policy affairs in general were things that I wanted to pursue, uh, much to my parents' chagrin, actually. They wanted me to go to the college and become a doctor. And instead of, uh, after like, I think a first semester of pursuing some initial pre-med courses, I decided that was not exciting for me. And so I changed uh, to majoring in government and uh, the rest is history. So through your work experience, did you ever have an aha moment where you knew that was the thing for you? Uh, so I certainly think that 9-11 had a lot to do with um, my interest in being in public policy. I had, I had already been uh, in Washington, D.C. for one summer before interning for my senator, so I certainly had an interest in um, public policy. But I probably didn't know that I wanted to make it a, a career until... happened, and what happened there was me feeling completely detached from the majority sentiment of the American public. Uh, And obviously, the majority sentiment was generally at that time supportive of the Iraq War, other um, uh, excursions, national security excursions, I felt very much were not akin to my values. And Uh, It was that sense of injustice, obviously born out over time, in which uh, I felt more at home with where I was and less, uh, you know, more upset with the fact that the trajectory of American um, society and politics and our leadership had led us down a disastrous path that I had felt was a disastrous path. And those kinds of injustices 
uh, and especially that one, drove me to stay involved in politics and over my engagement of politics, you know, so that starting in 2001, 2002 and continuing on, just re revealed more and more injustices to me. Uh, and to this day, 20 years later, those are still what drive me. Uh, it is seeing a sense of deep inequality in society, millions of people without health care, deep levels of poverty for a first world country. It's, it, it's radical levels of uh, racial injustice. It, you see all of it and you're like, that is just fundamentally wrong. And somebody's got to do something about it. Somebody's got to feel that and give a damn about it. And those are the kinds of things that continue to draw me into politics. Otherwise, you know, this isn't the venue that I would ordinarily want to be in. I'd, I'd rather be coaching baseball or doing something else with my life, but it, it, it's the injustices that drive me. Okay, so uh, I want to point out that you are Hoya and you went to Georgetown Law. So might I ask, where does law school fit in and what considerations should someone make for law school? Well, Kelvin, I, you know, I was fortunate um, to go to Georgetown Law School. It helped certainly prepare me for a life uh, with increasing understanding of, uh, you know, how to write and argue cogently, and that, that's useful in a variety of venues. But I, my big takeaway from law school is obviously kind of very practical, that you have to know what you want to do at the end of it before you start. Uh, and I think for too many um, students uh, who may be struggling, rightly so, with a uh, a decision about what they want to do with their lives after they graduate college, it can be an easy punt to say, well, I'll just go to law school, you know, and what I would caution about that approach is that uh, three additional years is a significant amount of time and the amount of debt that you pile on with those three years can be substantial and be life changing. And my concern for a lot of students who don't spend a lot of time thinking about that fundamental choice about going to law school is that that choice will be made for you. At the end of three years, with a lot of debt, you're going to be going and working for a law firm who is going to recruit on campus, and you're going to be needing to pay down that debt. So one of my big things is take a little break between college and law school. If you are firmly convinced that you want to go to law school, it would be very worthwhile to take a little break, evaluate what it is you want to do when you graduate law school after three years, and start pursuing that right at the jump. So it would, it would affect your course selection. It would, it would affect what things you want to do during the summer. Uh, and hopefully put you on the right path so that when you graduate, you aren't being sucked into a lifestyle that you haven't chosen for yourself uh, and instead choose the lifestyle that you want. I think that's great advice. And over the course of your career, you've worked in countless different roles, communications, policy, and advocacy. With your law degree and background, how does this all fit in together? Well, I, it never hurts to have um, more understanding of being able to sit in other people's shoes. I mean, it's generally a good rule of politics is that um, it's useful. Uh, it, you know, one of my pieces of advice for young people getting involved in public policy and politics is to do as many different jobs as you possibly can so that uh, you know a little bit about every element of um, how a system works together. And uh, I think you'll end up being drawn to the ones that you feel you're most adept at. But it's useful to know, hey, that person who answers the phone at the front, how does their job work in dealing with constituencies? Uh, how does that photographer, how does, how does their job work? Um, how does that digital video person work? How do, what does the comms director do? What does the policy director do? 
uh, in on a campaign? What is that field organizer doing? And how did those advanced people help? Um, how do they work? And I think the more you have an understanding of the various pieces that go into making a successful political and policy operation, the better off you're going to be in servicing in whatever role that it is that you play because you see the interconnectedness of the system. And I've been fortunate that I've gotten a little bit of exposure to a lot of different roles, which is why I got the opportunity to be a campaign manager. Uh, and I would urge, you know, especially when you're young, you have the the opportunity to to kind of pursue a lot of different courses um, and try a lot of different things. And if if you if you're you you'll know if you're trying enough things by knowing whether you found things that you don't like. And it, it you know, truly, some of my best experiences in life have been working, you know, at a law firm as a paralegal, a job that I hated, honestly. And, and it was one of the most useful experiences of my life because it told me what I didn't want to do. And uh, I think for everyone, to ha having a little bit of your own sense of, have I done things that I really don't like? And hopefully the answer is yes, because that means you're pushing yourself and you're testing a variety of different things. And then that will better enhance your uh, knowledge and awareness of doing the things that excite you. Yeah, that's really great advice. Uh, I guess kind of related to that, if you could go back and have any one of your previous positions again, which would it be? <laughs> oh, man. Well, you know, I, I, I would I just have to um, assert it would be the last one. Obviously, we, we, we ran a great campaign. Uh, it was an honor to travel with Bernie Sanders all around the country uh, and see, you know, the kinds of people that uh, – excitedly got drawn into the campaign. A lot of working class people, a lot of people who are, who are dem traditional voters or traditional Democratic voters, uh, really kind of fun events, uh, builds a sense of belonging and community, uh, and also trying to change the consciousness of America to give a, to give a damn about a, a, difference, a different set of policy objectives that we should be pursuing as a nation. Um, we, you know, I think we truly don't have the advanced society that we deserve yet uh, when not everyone can live up to um, their best hopes and dreams. Uh, increasingly becoming a deeply unequal society in which if you aren't born into a nice lot in life, it'll be very hard to, to achieve it. And, uh, you know, I think it will, it will take a set of the policy objectives that Bernie Sanders was arguing for to improve everybody's opportunities to, um, to achieve their best lives. So I would rerun that one, and obviously with a different outcome, Kelvin. Uh, I would uh, hopefully go back, apply some of my learned lessons, and uh, maybe see if we could win that nomination. Obviously, you've mentioned several different values and policies that influence what you do, and I think a lot of students feel very strongly in that way as well. But when you were a national policy director at the ACLU, how did you prioritize advocacy work, especially among many different worthy causes? Yeah, so the ACLU is obviously historically awesome and amazing civil rights institution, lots of great lawyers there who have, who, who have changed the course of this nation's history on everything from gay marriage and voting rights to um, you know, mass incarceration. Uh, even you go down the line, it's it, it is an institution that is um, indispensable, honestly, in American political life. And so, uh, when I got there, it, you know, I felt strongly. It was right after it, I, my first day was the same day that Donald Trump was inaugurated, and so you had millions of people literally signing up to be part of the ACLU. Not only in their small dollar contributions, but they wanted to give their time and help in some fashion or form. And I said, you know, to the ACLU leadership at the time that hey. 
if there's so many people who want to be associated with your brand and want to do something, it is almost your incumbent responsibility to give them some sense of direction. What can they do that'd be valuable? Uh, it can't just be or merely be like, hey, sit there and look at our lawsuits, right? I mean, those lawsuits are, are wonderful, but like, let's give these volunteers something to actively do to change um, the landscape on the issues that you care deeply about. And the ACLU is a uh, an amazing institution that it also has 50 state uh, uh, affiliates, which means that in every state that you go to, there's a, an existing ACLU uh, organization there, whether it's a Florida, Arizona, Colorado, wherever you go, there's going to be um, uh, more people. So we hired more political folks in some of those uh, um, branches so that they could become more engaged with some of their membership. And uh, some of the things we did were try to change the uh, state uh, state laws and advocate for local and state changes because oftentimes those are the easiest ones to achieve rather than changing federal law. And so we fought to get formerly incarcerated individuals in Florida their right to vote. Obviously, that's still an ongoing process. Changing voting rights in Nevada, um, you know, changing a whole host of uh, uh, a whole host of legal uh, and um, other political issues across the across the state and the country. Yeah, that was a very uh, insightful answer. My next question comes a bit from what you just said. Uh, in the ACLU, you talked about like emphasizing and harnessing the power of people. And in fact, you even made a website dedicated to it. So uh, my question is, how did this approach manifest in your time in the Bernie campaign? Well, it was the core of it, and I, you know, I can see that even before I joined the ACLU, I was a supporter of Bernie Sanders. I watched his 2015-2016 race quite closely. It was um, uh, helpful a little bit on the side, uh, though I never formally joined it. Uh, and so it really was watching the success that he had and then simultaneously joining the ACLU and seeing that they had a lot of people who wanted to come marching through the gates and help them. Uh, what Bernie had done in 1516 was uh, set up a kind of a distributed volunteer operation, which people sitting all across the country could make phone calls or talk to their uh, um, to their neighbors in different states and advocate for Bernie Sanders and their agenda. And, and, and that kind of marshalling of volunteer power was unique in that Bernie run. And having seen and witnessed that, I said, you know, let's bring some versions of that to the ACLU, and that was the orientation of people power, and we created this mass volunteer operation in which we had a lot of di uh, digital, a huge digital volunteer army that was sending out text messages and uh, holding uh, virtual events, but also in-person events, uh, making phone calls all across the country. So whenever we did an engagement, whether, you know, like the one I talked about in Florida, where we were fighting to re-enfranchise formerly incarcerated individuals, we had people and millions of people all, all across the country, not in Florida, calling into Florida to urge people to vote for that uh, Amendment 4 initiative and had people texting in and holding in-person events and recruiting in person in Florida. So that was all, you know, built out of some of the experience of what Bernie had successfully done in 15 and 16, we brought it to the ACLU and then kind of put it on steroids. With that familiarity with the Bernie campaign, you clearly knew some of the ropes, but what was the most surprising part once you were formally part of the campaign? Uh, the most surprising part of 2020 or? Yeah, the entire primary season up until he dropped out of the race. Well, you know, I mean, you reflect on the 2020 race and of course, 
what you had there was a very competitive field of really at, at, at peak, I think something like 25 candidates, maybe 24, 25 candidates, all, um, um, you know, competing for the nomination. And so the, the, the challenge for us was a lot greater. But what we found, I think, was that, you know, our campaign, Bernie Sanders, exceeded a lot of people's expectations because what he has successfully done is, um, is build a movement around this country uh, for a progressive agenda that for a long period of time, I think, had spoken to a silent pain and suffering that many people had, right? That they, it was really a sense that, you know, we're struggling out here, no one sees it. He comes along, he, he says, hey, I see it. And by the time 2020 rolls around, there's far more awareness and appreciation for that unseen pain. And, uh, and he, it literally changed the entire Democratic Party as a result that where, in some sense, every single candidate who was in the field uh, was arguing that they are a progressive and that they were going to pursue a progressive agenda akin to Bernie Sanders. Uh, so, you know, I, I think I think the surprising thing is, like, obviously, he put a swag in the sand in 2015 and everyone kind of moved towards him. And nevertheless, we still enjoyed some pretty great success in 2020. The, the challenge, of course, is that it came up a bit short. And uh, I think that that has to do with the fact that we're still trying to change the consciousness of a nation that hasn't truly had the experience of, of someone like Bernie Sanders with that agenda, Medicare for all, canceling all student debt, free tuition at public colleges and universities, that kind of agenda, marijuana legalization, campaign at a national level before, right? And so I think people were still worried, could that kind of agenda win in the general election? Uh, I tend to believe it can, and it will. Um, the moment has not yet arrived for it, unfortunately, but hopefully in the near future, in the next four, eight years, there's going to be a candidate who comes along with that very agenda, who wins the Democratic nomination and who then competes the general election. I believe at that point in time, you're going to see you know, a lot of people turn out and support that agenda. Yeah, so uh, Bernie 2016 was already like a major milestone. So how did you try to distinguish Bernie 2020 from Bernie 2016? Yeah, well, so there's a, a virtues and um, um, struggles there. You know, the virtue is, of course, that, you know, having had a successful run in 16, you know that there's some elements there that can be modeled um, uh, effectively again. So, you know, we had a good sense of volunteer donors, volunteer organizations that we call on some, uh, you know, high hires that we could make some in the states and around the country. Uh, so we had initially, we had basically had a much more formulated set of expectations and a backbone to build upon that had already pre-existed. But that said, I think Bernie got uh, um, caricatured unfairly in 16 as, you know, uh, a bit of somebody who's insensitive to um, people of color experiences, uh, somebody who is naive, somebody whose agenda could never actually be accomplished, um, somebody who's affiliated with these kind of Bernie bros. Uh, you know, there's a lot of manufactured kind of myths around them that I think continue to hurt our campaign even into 19 and 20. Because um, you know, you know, the person of Bernie Sanders, who I know well, um, very com uh, compassionate, empathetic individual, very principled, uh, very honest. Uh, that didn't always come across to some people who had already formulated an opinion about him based off something that occurred four years ago. And so, while we were trying to, during the course of the campaign, show 
uh, aside uh, of, of Bernie and encourage people to join this movement and be persuaded to join us. I think it was um, a challenge because some of those hard set views had already kind of been established four years earlier. You mentioned some of Bernie's qualities, but do you have any memories of working with him that stand out to you? Uh, well, there's a lot of fun events. I mean, he's a fun person, uh, you know, contrary to people's expectations about him. So we played baseball in the Field of Dreams in Iowa. Uh, his whole family was out there. It was the most beautiful day ever. And um, uh, watching him get the hit and run to first base, uh, he was excited about that. Uh, and I know he'll never forget it. Uh, I remember the last day of the campaign, actually, or the last day, of, technically, of the campaign, when we had before we wrapped up public events. So our last day before we had to never do public events again because of COVID was in Michigan. And we were there on, I think it was the day of the primary, March 10th. And on that day, we went to the um, uh, National R&B Museum, uh, and we went down uh, and he's a huge R&B fan. People don't know about that. and. And he was singing like songs from the Temptations down there with uh, with our tour guide, uh, and uh, that was uh, that was pretty memorable. Uh, it was, he was like a kid in a candy store. He enjoyed that. We also went uh, to the Henry Ford Museum and took a look at some of the older cars. Uh, that one day, I think was um, uh, I saw him particularly excited and happy, uh, despite the fact that the outcome wasn't everything that we hoped for that night in Michigan. But it was a fun day. And it was like kind of the, 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 the fun side of Bernie Sanders that people don't get to see because he tends to be a very serious person. Every time he's get him in public life, he wants to talk about the issues that are affecting people and hurting them across the country. That's where his inclinations lie. But when you get the chance to see um, the, the kid side of him, uh, it, it's exciting. So can you tell us a little more about any tensions with the DNC, how you manage that relationship and if there are any connections between former Bernie staffers in the DNC and the Biden campaign today? Yeah, we yeah. So we had um, a more tendentious relationship in 2016 when I think the DNC was uh, playing a more overt role in trying to support Hillary Clinton's uh, nomination. And this time around, I think the DNC had, had learned that lesson. Obviously, gotten hurt a fair amount from. Um, the reputation of having been put its finger on the scales, and so this time around, yeah, they, they, we have no complaints with the, with the party. Honestly, you know that we had a great relationship with um, Tom Perez and some of his deputies there at the DNC, and uh, we all the debates were run well. Um, and anytime we needed information, voter file access, all that stuff was handled very professionally. So I can't say that there were any real concerns. Uh, um, we, we played on the Compete a level playing field. Uh, we lost. Uh, uh, came in second place uh, honorably, but it was a challenging, you know, contest at the end with obviously uh, a number of the other candidates dropping out and and supporting uh, Biden, which uh, 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 created a pretty difficult obstacle for us to overcome. Okay, so uh, switching gears a bit to like kind of a review to the of the political space. Uh, at multiple points in your career, you've used technology in your political efforts. How do you see technology being used in politics today? And do you believe it's being used effectively or responsibly? Well, it used to be the case that Democrats were often the ones who were run, rushing to a lot of these technologies first and, and meeting uh, people uh, in, in new and innovative ways. In fact, you know, when the blogosphere first developed, I think it was often the left that was utilizing the blogosphere, and then tw as Twitter became a bigger deal as uh, uh, as Facebook and as um, 
YouTube and all of those uh, as they kind of sprung up in 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, the, you know, Democrats often first utilizing them, a lot of the progressives in those spaces. But increasingly, I think Republicans uh, and conservatives have done a, a pretty effective job of uh, building their strength online. And I think there's a lot of enthusiasm around the Trump um, ecosystem. So they have a lot of people who are really kind of fired up for Trump, and they use that to kind of build a lot of news channels and on YouTube. If you go online, you'll see that there's a bunch of like conservative YouTube channels that work to support, you know, Trump and some of the conspiracy theories that surround them. Uh, that's also true on Facebook and Twitter. So I think they've done an effective job at kind of uh, becoming a, a more digitally powerful operation. Nowadays, you know, because of COVID, everything has moved online and kind of the pace of reaching voters in digital ways has metastasized. It was obviously something we were doing in the Bernie Sanders campaign fairly effectively as we were doing digital organizing. Uh, but now, you know, that's the only kind of organizing that's really occurring. And um, so now you have the Joe Biden campaign, which didn't do all that much digital organizing in the primary, really nothing, now is um, building a pretty significant operation uh, to talk to a lot of people in the battleground states. And I think that's going to lay the path of, in the future, a much, many more Democratic campaigns are going to see that this is, this is the effective and the easy way to go. The hook with doing anything digitally and virtually is that you have to have an enthused volunteer base. You have to have a set of people who are willing to do actions on your behalf because they are inspired and excited to do it. And I think that kind of a politics means that you have to be a compelling candidate who can mobilize volunteers. Uh, and that's obviously a recipe of Bernie Sanders' success. But I think for future Democratic politicians, it will be a test of, are you going to be a viable candidate? Can you not only generate you know, large dollar donations, which has historically been a marker of the candidate's success, can you generate small dollar donations, which is now a much more current version of, uh, of success? But increasingly, can you generate volunteer actions on your behalf and mobilize people to make calls and texts? and hold uh, virtual events on your behalf. And increasingly, I think, and I hope, that, that pol our politics will reward those candidates that can generate that kind of enthusiasm. Uh, and that's a good thing. So at the time of this recording, in September 2020, if you're comfortable sharing, what is your prediction for the presidential election and any of the several other elections happening in November? Uh, well, you know, we are, uh, I think, two weeks out from the first debate, and there's gonna be three presidential debates, I think one vice presidential debate, we're about 50 days away from the November election. And you know, I speak to you now as the polls are tightening uh, and uh, in a lot of the battleground states, but I, I do think it is the case that Biden holds a fairly um, consistently um, decent lead in a lot of these places. I tend to believe, obviously, there's, there's, we'll see how things uh, turn out, but I tend to believe he's in a good and strong position to win this. And I think part of that is because Donald Trump, on the one hand, uh, uh, he's been president of the United States for four years, and there's a verdict on his record. And in some form or fashion, this campaign election cycle is a judgment on whether he's doing a good job or not. And I think when you look at the tight margins by which he won in 2016, I got to believe, and I, I do think that 
uh, more people than not uh, who are on the fence in 16 and went with him now see that uh, that wasn't a great decision, that he hasn't uh, effectively been a good president for them and has betrayed a lot of the values that and promises um, that they had uh, had for him. So I, I think on the one hand, Biden is benefited by Donald Trump being a catastrophically bad president. Uh, but in addition to that, I think um, in Biden himself as a person of decency and character is someone who I think people have gotten to know in public life for about 30, 35 years, know his pains, know his struggles, and know him to be someone who I think they feel like, even while they disagree with him, is a good person. And uh, I think it works in his stead that he's like, okay, seen as a decent, good person who, had, especially at this, at this stage, we'd like to turn the page off of a pretty tumultuous, difficult four years. And let's just um, get back into a place with steady leadership. So I, I, I tend to believe he's in a fairly strong position. And uh, we'll see. I hope, hope I'll still be, you know, biting my nails as as we go through these debates and um, right up until election day. Uh, but knock on wood, it'll all turn out fine. Uh, so staying on topic of the 2020 election, uh, what do you think are the implications of this election for the progressive movement? Uh, I do believe the progressives are in ascendancy within the Democratic Party, and uh, it is our ideas that tend to be the kinetic energy of the party. If you look at the kinetic energy of the party, it's all with progressives, right? You look at the where the volunteer base, who are the small-dollar donors, they're all progressive people, and that's why, like, every candidate wants to call themselves progressives uh, nowadays. Um, and increasingly, as progressives are in ascendancy, our, our policy ideas are popular, Medicare for all, even in places like Mississippi, where Bernie Sanders lost by a large margin, it, you saw the exit polls with people saying, you know, by 60, 70% that they liked and supported Medicare for all. It tells you something about the trajectory of this party. The ideas of the progressive agenda are driving it. And so I think increasing over the next four to eight years, uh, progressives are going to define Democratic Party. Uh, there's going to be fits and starts here. Uh, we're going to win some, lose some. So you see with some of these races at the congressional level, uh, Charles Booker ran a fantastic race in Kentucky and came up a hair's breadth short of being the general election nominee. Uh, but next time around, if he runs, he's going to win. Uh, and uh, and I think you know, people like Cory Bush who ran in Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri, Jamal Bowman in New York, a whole host of new upstart progressive challengers are carving a name for themselves is going to define this progressive movement over the next few years and compel other candidates to run on the same agenda. Uh, and so as Biden, knock on wood, enters the White House, I think he can count on the fact that the the kind of strength within this party is on the progressive side, and he's got to do his part to try to run a progressive presidency and not only do it on policy, but also bring some of those progressives into his administration. Um, so we'll we'll see how he does, but I I have a little doubt that he's aware of that dynamic, and we on the progressive movement side will continue to be a healthy thorn in the side and continue to be uh, asserting pressure uh, and challenging this party to do better on a variety of injustices that we have to tackle. Um, as just one example, um, Kelvin, like you look at. We're in a healthcare crisis right now. It's crazy. I mean, we are in a healthcare crisis, and we've gone through multiple rounds of coronavirus relief. And have you seen anywhere near the sufficient and adequate response on the healthcare side to the challenges that we're facing? No. I mean, you know, people at this time right now should be getting not only the free testing, free treatment, but really just knocking down barriers of ease of access and directly into 
uh, automatic enrollment into public sector programs that get them immediate care. Our, our society, our health of our society depends on it. And obviously, I, I would believe in Medicare for all, just get everybody covered all in one fell swoop. But uh, obviously, I know Biden doesn't. And so at the very least, you can say that everyone who's lost their job and lost their associated health care should automatically be enrolled uh, in, in some kind of uh, health care, public sector health care program. Uh, because we can't trust we can't trust health insurance companies to do what's right here. So let's get them all involved and engaged. And uh, and if we don't, you know, we're just this COVID is just going to hang around, hang around. You look at all these other countries around the world. What one common thread is those countries that have universal health care are doing much, much better in controlling the virus. And that's no mistake. So I, I think at the top of my head is that, you know, we have this massive health care injustice going on and we've got to solve for it. And we're going to be a constant pain in the butt until it gets solved. So here on Fly on the Wall, we like to end on a lighter note with a lightning round, where we're going to ask you three quick questions and hopefully get three quick answers. So first, if you could go to dinner with any historical figure, who would it be? <laughs> oh, gosh. That is a challenge. I mean, I think, it, like you know, your head is like, do you want it to be an entertaining dinner? Do you want to learn? Do you want to, you know, philosophically... I mean, the first name that popped into my head was, of course, learning from Dr. King. But uh, and then, the, and then the second head that popped into my head was just like, is there a fun comedian out there, like Richard Pryor or somebody who would be fun to hang out with for a night? But I, I, you know, those, those are some of the immediate reactions. Um, but I, I would love to think about that more deeply because I'm sure I'm forgetting like some people that actually like really, really love to consider. Okay, so you've been around the world. If you can travel anywhere once the pandemic is over, where would it be? Uh, once the pandemic is over, um, I could definitely use a vacation. And I would love to take our family to a nice warm climate uh, on a beach somewhere, maybe on the Mediterranean, so any of the countries surrounding the Mediterranean, uh, I'm, I'm ambivalent, but that, would, that seems nice. What is your favorite book? Uh, so I like, um, I like sometimes getting outside of politics. I, I'm a big baseball fan. Uh, there are books about baseball that I've enjoyed, whether it's, you know, Moneyball, obviously, that explain the dynamics of baseball. But there's a good book about called Three Nights in August, I believe. It was about Tony La Russa's managing of the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, I, I enjoy, you know, uh, coaches and understanding how um, people have been coaching uh, successfully. And so that was one that comes to mind. Okay, so uh, thank you for the great interview. We uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, thanks again for joining us on this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. All right, thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. If you want to hear more from Faz, make sure you register for his geopolitics discussion group, Learn the Burn, a presidential campaign outline, on Mondays from 4 to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. It'll take place over Zoom, so make sure to check out the geopolitics newsletter for the sign-up link, or just Google geopolitics discussion group. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. As always, you can email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. See you next week.